Joshua chapter 6 and verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And so it was that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded all the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. And the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord and they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus, the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp and they did so for six days. Then, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Let's get down to verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that every man went up and into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. It's a great story. Father blesses this morning with the retelling of this story. Take us back, Lord, and help us to see what you want us to see. And especially, God, today, would you open our hearts, keep our bodies warm, Father, that we might hear and not miss what you have for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I went back. Some of you may be thinking, didn't you already talk about this last week, Rick? And uh, it's the memory slipping there. I went back to re-study this for Wednesday night, looking at chapters 5 and 6. We ended up not having Wednesday night because of the weather and everything else. And it's been an interesting winter. Next week we'll get on into 5 and 6 and finish out and move on to chapter 7. But as I was back studying and reading through it, and considering these words, something stuck out to me that I had never really seen before. Kind of hinted at, but I processed it, and, and it's so amazing that I want to share it with you this morning and, and help you follow along, because I believe the application to you and me today in our lives is huge. It's massive. Watch this. Every strategy, every strategy is based on an underlying principle of some kind. Every plan that's undertaken, especially when you're talking about warfare, is based on a bottom line principle or belief. 
We've seen in Iraq. Our president has a belief, a foundational principle that is driving and guiding his decision originally to send our men and women into Iraq. It's guiding his decision, as you heard on Wednesday night when he addressed the nation, President Bush said, we're going to send more troops. We're going to ramp it up a bit. 20,500 more troops heading in with the hopes of securing Iraq in a way that it's not being secured. And we all know what's going on. We see the news every day. We understand it's problematic. It's frightening. It's scary. And frankly, there's more going on in the Middle East than politics. It's a hotbed of religious struggle. It is a holy war as we've talked about. In fact... I'm not going to get into it this morning, but I am going to talk to you very soon. We're going to do a prophecy update, and we're going to look specifically at Iran, because what's driving Iran's president right now, and Iran, by the way, is biblical Persia. And Ezekiel talks specifically in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, talks about Persia coming against Israel, along with Russia and other countries gathering together. And it's a fascinating study, but it's even more so because it's pertinent to the times. But Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, however you say his last name, absolutely believes that the Mahdi, which is the Messiah of Islam, is coming back in 2007, probably in the spring. He believes it so fervently that he has no interest in any kind of political talk. He just wants the nuclear reactors built because they're preparing for the Mahdi to come, their Messiah. They also think Jesus is going to come back as a Shiite Moab. I don't think so. (laughs) But that's another message for another time. It is a difficult place over there. But here is the underlying principle, and our president has said this before, and I've shared it with you before, but he believes in what he calls the most powerful influence in human history, freedom. President Bush believes that if you give people freedom, if you even allow them to taste freedom, it is such a powerful moving force that it will change the face of the Middle East. Now, biblically, you and I know that's not going to happen. The Middle East is going to be changed by the face of Jesus Christ. But he believes so strongly in freedom. And indeed, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom is an important concept. And I can't even begin today to express to you how important it is in the life of a Christian, this idea of freedom. Because we so naturally in our flesh, in our humanity, we tend to run back to law and not embrace the freedom that God has called us to. The subtlety of religion and legalism and self-reliance seeps into Christian thought, confusing and undermining what I believe is the most influential, powerful influence in human eternity. Not just in history. I believe there is an influence more powerful than freedom, more powerful than any other influence, and it focuses on our eternity, and that's grace. Grace. The power of grace to motivate, to drive, to move us. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and you should memorize this verse, not because you have to, but because it will bless you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace saves you. Grace is what God provides for us. It is by His grace we are saved, and nothing else is grace. 
Well, that's a frightening concept because I was talking to someone after first hour. It's like a child in a front yard, fenced in, safe, playing on the toys, and dad opens the gate and says, come on out into the world. And the child goes, I'm safe, I'm happy right here. I don't want to go beyond that fence. It's dangerous, it's wild, it's unknown out there. Yeah, it is, but it's great. And that's what the Lord would say to us. Come out of the front yard. Come into freedom in Christ. Experience and know my grace. Now you may say to me this morning, well Rick, grace is a, is a New Testament concept, isn't it? And how does this apply to Joshua and Israel? These people are under law. I mean really under law. If you've been studying along with us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have studied the law. Over and over, time and time again, we have gone back to the law. And the children of Israel had. By the time of the conquest of Canaan, they had heard the law numerous times. The entire book of Deuteronomy, that last sermon of Moses, was a retelling of the law. That they might know God's expectations and live by those expectations. So if they're under law, how does grace apply? I want you to look at this story a little more closely. Because you're going to see, as I discovered, something that I believe is essential to understanding grace and how it works and how it moves and what God has planned for us and what He's doing. Now, in the story before us, and we talked about this last week, who is it that leads Israel into the battle against Jericho? Who leads them in that battle? Joshua? Is it? Are you sure? (laughs) We talked about last week. Joshua was there, but Joshua was just doing what he was told. It's the captain of the Lord's host, Jesus Christ, who leads the people in the battle against Jericho. We need to understand something. Look back at verses 13, 14, and 15 of chapter 5. Tells us it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and said are you for us or for our adversaries and he said no (laughs) rather I am come now as the captain of the host of the Lord and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said what has my Lord to say to his servant. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It is the presence of the Lord in flesh, in human form, sword drawn, ready to fight. This is, I believe it and convinced, Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. A Christophany. We again went into that and looked at it last week. I want you to understand more about this presence though, about this appearance of the Lord in flesh. He's called the captain of the Lord's host. That word captain in the Hebrew is an important word. It's sar. And it's not captain like we might think of it in our military service today where you've got generals and colonels and majors and down the chain of command, then you've got a captain somewhere down there. It's captain as in commander-in-chief. As in the head honcho. That word sar indicates the Lord. It indicates the highest office. Captain. Sar. Jesus, by the way, is called our captain in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The captain of our salvation. That's a name for Jesus. And here, captain of the Lord's host. But listen now carefully to what it is that the captain commands Joshua to do. Verse 3 of chapter 6. 
March around the city, all the men of war circling the city once, and do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It's problematic. It's troubling. We have a difficulty here because this is a list of violations of the law. What the captain of the Lord's host tells Joshua to do contains at least four straight out violations of Torah. First one is marching on the Shabbat, Sabbath day. March around the city six times, one time every day for six days, and on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, you're to march around that city seven times, more than any other day. Sabbath day, the people were not even supposed to travel. But now they're going to march around the city in violation of Sabbath, violation of Hebrew law. It's prohibited, and yet the captain of the Lord's host tells Joshua to do this. By the way, there wasn't supposed to be any fighting on the Sabbath either. And yet the people went up and fought when the walls fell. Violating the law of the Sabbath. Second violation. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They weren't supposed to do that. The Ark was not to go into battle. Now those of you who have seen Indiana Jones, that bastion of historical truth, know that there's a picture shown in a book at the beginning of the movie that's the Israelites carrying the Ark into battle and it's lightning shooting out of the Ark and it's taken out of the enemies and that never happened. That's not how it works. The Ark was not to be carried into battle. That's a violation of law. Now the Israelites did try it. You can read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Israelites went up against the Philistines without God's permission. And in this battle against Philistia, they go up to fight and they lose 4,000 men. And so they retreat in shame. And as they come back, they think, well, why, why didn't we win? Something's missing here. The ark. The ark's missing. So they send to Shiloh and they get a couple of priests, Hophni and Phinehas. And Phinehas and Hophni come up and they bring the ark and they take the ark into battle. Surely we're going to win. <laughs> no, you're not going to win and stop calling me Shirley. They go into battle. And what happens is now not 4,000, but 30,000 Israelites are slaughtered, massacred by the Philistines. The ark is captured and Hophni and Phinehas the priests are killed in the battle. They were not to take the ark into battle. It is a violation of law. And by the way, Hophni and Phinehas being priests brings us to the next violation at Jericho. If you're simply looking at the law in its true form, the priests led the march and they were not to go into battle. Priests were exempt from fighting. Priests were never supposed to be part of the army according to Torah. Numbers chapter 1 verse 47. In going through the numbering of all the different men who were able to fight, it gets down to the Levites and says, and they aren't supposed to fight. They don't fight. They don't go into battle. Violation of the law. Violation number four, number four is um, they blew it. Literally with the ram's horn. They blew the ram's horn. What's the big deal? Well, Numbers chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work. You shall make them. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. Two trumpets of silver. Here they're blowing seven ram's horns, the shofar. The shofar used in religious practices, used in feasts and festivals of Israel, but never, ever, before or after used in warfare. 
And yet here, the captain of the Lord's host says, I want you to blow the ram's horn. Are you with me so far? Four violations. Four violations. Marching on the Sabbath. Carrying the ark into battle. The priests involved in the battle. Blowing the ram's horn instead of the silver trumpets. And gang, Jesus is responsible for the violation of the law. Captain of the Lord's host. He didn't just give the plan, by the way. He didn't just say, hey, go do this, and then back off to a distant field. I believe, personally, that Jesus Christ himself, in the flesh, with sword drawn, led the march around Jericho. Where do you get that? Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, it is the second to last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Before you get to Matthew there. Zechariah chapter 14. By the way, great passage of scripture. If you're ever feeling a little down or depressed or having a difficult week, just read Zechariah 14 and it will pick you up and take you forward. It's a great chapter. Zechariah 14 verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered. And the women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. That's not the encouraging part. Don't worry, it's coming. (laughs) Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand. I love this picture. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle, from east to west, by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no night. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, that's the Mediterranean, and the other half toward the western sea, that's what we call the Dead Sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. And verse 9 says, praise the Lord, the Lord will be king in all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. God is coming. Jesus is coming back. He will rule. He will reign in that day over all the earth. And there will be no question who the king is in that day. Now, As wonderful and exciting as it is to read about Jesus coming back. You need to understand what's being talked about in Zechariah 14. For it's a day when all the world will be gathered together against Jerusalem. The battle's going to start just north of Jerusalem in a place called the Jezreel Valley. It's also known as the Valley of Megiddo. Har Megiddo. Har, the mountain of Megiddo. And that place, gang, is where we get the word Armageddon. It is that great battle. All the nations of the world gather together. And why they come is interesting from other texts in the Bible. They are gathered together literally at that point to fight against Antichrist. Against that world ruler. That up to that point people trusted but finally realized this guy's a sham. And so they come to fight him and they're enraged and they're engaged in this battle. And suddenly, suddenly at that time, Jesus returns. 
But in an amazing and, and unbelievable situation, all these armies that are gathered against Antichrist will turn in that moment, see Jesus coming in all of His glory, and they will turn all of their battles against Jesus. They will turn and fight Him. Bad move. <laughs> Revelation 19 verse 11 says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. All the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. Zechariah told us that same thing. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Zechariah prophesies that Jesus is going to come and establish his presence there in the holy city. Establish his kingdom. But notice this peculiar phrase in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. That is a past tense phrase. We, we have in this translation, as when he fights. It's literally when he fought. The Lord will go forth and fight those nations when he fought on that day of battle. Now think this through with me. The focal point here is Jesus Christ. When did Jesus go ahead in battle and fight previously? You won't find it in the New Testament. And there are many people who will say, well, I like Jesus in the New Testament because he's kind of soft-spoken and he's a good guy and he heals and he never raises a sword to anybody. I just don't like the God of the Old Testament. Gang, the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. The God who fought the battles in the Old Testament is the one and same God who loves and heals and saves in the New. Same God, part of the same plan. And by the way, the same God who we read about in Revelation with a tongue like a sharp two-edged sword and blood all over his robe. And it ain't his blood this time, gang. It's the blood in the valley of Megiddo that the Bible tells us is going to be so rich and deep it comes up to the bridles on the horses. It will be such a bloody, bloody battle. This picture of Jesus is not one we often see in nursery schools. And in, and in you know, it'd be interesting to have a picture like that in the nursery, wouldn't it? <laughs> Take the babies in there and he's just flashing the sword, you know. <laughs> an awesome warrior when is it that Jesus and I'm talking Jesus in the flesh when did he go forth and fight one time Joshua chapter 6 even in the Old Testament and there are those who will read Zechariah 14 and go oh it's talking about the Red Sea well you know what the Lord did fight at the Red Sea but not in flesh not as a man he did go before the children of Israel and led them through the sea. And later in Joshua, we're going to see battles that were won that says the Lord went before them. But here is the only case where we see a human standing there with a drawn sword, ready to fight. The captain of the Lord's host. This is what I believe Zechariah is talking about as when he fought in that day of battle. He's going to fight again. Jesus fought the battle of Jericho. Jesus went before the children of Israel. Okay, now listen. It's Jesus, but Emmanuel, God with us, is there literally, physically, 
leading the charge. And do you realize what this means? Go back to Joshua 6. Seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark on the seventh day and march around the city and the priests shall blow the ram's horns. Those four violations of the law commanded by Jesus, led by Jesus. What does this mean? It means that when Jesus is present, the law is no longer at play. When Jesus is there, the law is fulfilled. Track this with me. Matthew 5.17 He said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Because when Jesus is present, the law is fulfilled. When Jesus is there, He fulfills the law in and of Himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9, Hey, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Because of that presence of Jesus, when He returns, there's not going to be any of the imperfect for you and for me. We will be with Him, and we will be like Him, John says, because we're going to see Him as He is. And Paul's talking about this return of Jesus, but listen, don't miss this this morning. In your life, in my life, when the perfect comes, that is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, when He comes, the partial passes away. That's grace, and that's what saves me. The presence of the Lord Jesus in my life. Because all of these other things, and I mean point by point in the law, they are all there for one reason and one reason alone, and that's to point us to Jesus Christ. That's why the law exists. That's why the law is there. And even in these four seeming violations, number one, and if you're taking notes, you might jot this down, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. He is the rest that we've been called in the book of Hebrews to enter into. The Sabbath game is a picture, a, a pointer, a shadow of Jesus Christ who is the real thing. Why is it that when we take a Sabbath day, as we are wont to do, you know, we'll take a day off here and there, and you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, good, I don't have anything that I have to do today, and you'll lie in bed, and as another person told me after our first hour discussion, she said, you know, I was laying in bed yesterday morning just relaxing, and I started to feel guilty that I wasn't up doing something. <laughs> Welcome to the human race. This is what we do. But even if you have a whole day guilt-free of just taking a day off and relaxing and kicking back and not doing anything... Have you noticed that by the end of the day at bedtime you're still a little bit tired? And you start to think, I could use one more of these. Or you go on vacation. And at the end of vacation you come home and you think, I need a vacation from my vacation. You call into work, can I just take two or three more days off? Because I just, I'm no good on my own. I was wiped out. I just need some more time to rest here. Why? Because our rest is imperfect. The Sabbath for Israel was imperfect. Because even though there was a day of rest every week, there was still work the next day. It was never fulfilled completely. But in Jesus, He is our Sabbath. Indeed, the Hebrew writer says, chapter 4, verse 2, We have had good news preached to us, just as they also, Israel, but the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. We enter the Sabbath. We enter the rest. And by the way, the little numbers up there, we got a little number system here now for kids who are down there, the crawlers and walkers. And you see a number go up, chill out, it's okay, it's not for you unless you have a kid with that number. So two? <laughs> She's going, all right, I get to go to the warm house. 
Hebrews 4 verse 3 says, those who have believed enter that rest. John 6, 28, one of my favorite verses, the Jewish people are talking to Jesus and they say, what shall we do so we may work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Get a pen, write it down. Believe in Him whom He has sent. Huh? That's it. Matthew 11 verse 28, Jesus said, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Which is why in Matthew 12, 8, Jesus calls himself, he grabs hold of the name Lord of the Sabbath. Because he is the rest. And we find our rest in him. He fulfills the Sabbath in and of himself. Jesus is our ark. Our Ark of the Covenant. That they took in the battle of Jericho. Gang, the Ark is a picture of Jesus Christ through and through. Those of you who study back in Exodus, you've seen this. The Ark, that wooden box, about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep, made of acacia wood, which is that wood that was found in good supply out in the wilderness. That thorny wood, by the way, probably the same thorns that were pressed down and crushed into Jesus' skull on the cross. Same wood used for the Ark of the Covenant. That wood that reminds us of the humanity of Jesus, covered around by pure gold, reminding us of the divinity of Jesus. And there's so much in the Ark of the Covenant just to look at the Ark and compare to Jesus as it pictures and portrays Him. But even more so, what was inside the Ark? Anybody remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The law was. The Ark carried the law. Jesus Christ carries the law. Jesus fulfills the law, carries the law within himself. Hebrews 10.7, Jesus says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. And he did, perfectly, flawlessly. Jesus carried the law in and of himself, like the Ark of the Covenant that was just a shadow of the real Ark of the Covenant, who is Jesus Christ. And I remind you again of this verse, Matthew 5.17. Don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. To be the fulfillment of the law. He's our Sabbath. He's our ark. And Jesus is our great high priest. For all the high priests in the history of Israel, for all the priesthood, it was simply a picture of the high priest to come who is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ appeared... As high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, and the Jewish priesthood itself is simply a shadow, a type of Jesus Christ, who is the high priest, the ultimate high priest. He is our Sabbath. He's our ark. He's our great high priest. And number four, Jesus trumpets the gospel. Jesus trumpets the gospel. Even in that shofar, we have a picture of Jesus Christ. The shofar, the ram's horn. It's a picture of Jesus. How so? Abraham, several years before this, centuries, Abraham led his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him because that's what God asked him to do. It's in Genesis chapter 22. Interesting story. Interesting parallels in the story. Up there on Mount Moriah, by the way, which later is called Mount Calvary, same mountain, and I won't go into it this morning, but I think Jesus was crucified on the self-same spot as the attempted crucifixion or attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary. 
But what was it that happened when they were up there? Abraham raises the knife. He's about to slay his one and only son. And God says, no, stop, hold on. We're going to go with plan B today, Abraham. You have great faith. I see your faith. What did Abraham sacrifice on that day? He found in the thicket a ram. And the ram was the perfect replacement, was the replacement there for Isaac. And Genesis 22 verse 13 tells us Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. <laughs> what a coincidence. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And don't miss this. Isaac is not the picture of Jesus in that story the ram is the picture of Jesus Isaac is the picture of you and me who should have been sacrificed father's hand raised knife ready to be driven into us because we deserve the punishment but we weren't a ram was in the thicket the Lord provided who did he provide at Mount Moriah later Mount Calvary Jesus Christ the perfect lamb of God was sacrificed for us and so at Jericho they blow the ram's horn the ram's horn the shofar gang it is to picture or portray Jesus to point us in the direction of Jesus himself every aspect of the law it is amazing and the more in depth we have gone into the study of Torah the more we have seen Jesus time and time again in the Sabbath in the ark in the high priest even in the ram's horn surrounding Jericho seven days on the seventh day they're all pictures and shadows and types and reflections of the reality because when Jesus Christ is present the law is no longer in play now turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and we'll sum this up Colossians chapter 2 so important to get this game because because religion religion takes us to a place that God never wanted us to go listen to what Paul says Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 Colossians 2 6 therefore Paul says as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude now stop right there listen Paul says as you received Christ Jesus as Lord so walk in him but what we tend to do is receive Christ Jesus as Lord not having done anything to receive him not being good but just saved, we recognize Jesus as Lord, we say, I want that, I want to be with you, Lord. Give our lives to the Lord. And then we enter into the religion of man. And then we start walking away from how we were saved. We were saved by grace and grace alone. And yet, once that salvation happens, that momentous event where we give our lives to the Lord, then we start saying, but, 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 but what about this church's traditions that I'm involved with now? I have to start keeping those, right? Yeah, yeah, make sure you do that. Well, what about church attendance? I, but now that I'm saved, i got to be at church. I mean, I can't be saved and not go to church, right? Now that I'm saved, there are certain ways I have to behave differently, and we enter into religion. And Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Some of us need to go back to that day when we gave our lives to Jesus in grace and remember the freedom that we were given. Amen. 
Because some of us are pretty bound up in religion. Well, Paul goes on. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. I love what Steve Martin says about philosophy. He says, I learned just enough philosophy in college to mess me up for the rest of my life. (laughs) See to it no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of of the world, rather than according to Christ. In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Him you have been made complete. Like marching seven times on the seventh day, that picture of completion. In Him you are complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And by the way, if you haven't been baptized, we will break through the ice for you this morning and do it today. As I shared earlier, we've got several of our shepherds here who are willing to do that for you. And and I'll be praying for you from the side right there. I'm there for you. He says in verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. That is the law. For the law decrees what we cannot keep. And we need to understand that. We cannot keep the law perfectly. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. But we can't, and so we need Him, and He cancels it out, because Paul says it was hostile to us. And it was taken out of the way, and He nailed it to the cross. And when He disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Therefore, Paul says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things, watch this, things which, pay attention, things which are, don't miss this, (laughs) things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul sums it up in one sentence. The law is the shadow. Christ is the substance. The law, the law is just a reflection. Christ is the reality. The law is a picture. Christ is the person. And Paul then goes on and says, Don't let anyone defraud you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Not from you. Not from your behavior. Not from your ability to keep law. But from God. Verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against the fleshly indulgence. And I love that scene from that life-changing, life-altering movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) Where the... Where the monks are walking along and they're singing this requiem. And as 
they walk, they take two or three steps and they sing something, something, something requiem and they take these boards and go BAM! And then they march along three or four steps singing their requiem. BAM! And they just keep... That's religion. That is religion and that's what so many Christians do even today. I love the Lord. Oh, we're going to be late for church. BAM! Oh man, I've got to make sure I'm keeping this law. Bam! Oh, I'm stepping out. I feel guilty. Bam! And we keep hitting ourselves in the face. It's self-abasement. It's self-made religion. And it is not of the Lord. Grace is of the Lord. Let me explain this just a little bit further. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The tutor is the pointer. The tutor leads us to Christ. So let me ask you what you prefer, the shadow or the substance? Do you want the picture or the person? Marianne took some pictures of Cheryl for me. Good pictures. Nice, not... Bad, good pictures. You can look at them. I'd share them with anyone. We put them up on PowerPoint. Maybe for our 20th I'm in so much trouble. For our 20th anniversary, um, Cheryl had some pictures taken, and and they're great, and I love them. And I got a little disc that had music with it that she gave me, and then there's a little booklet where you can go through and you can look at the pictures, and and it's it's a great little gift, a wonderful gift. And when I'm away from Cheryl, it's something to be great if I'm traveling or something, stick it in the suitcase, take it with me, wonderful to have there. But how weird would it be if she gave me the pictures and I sat in the corner of the house looking at the pictures all the time. She's so beautiful. I just love my wife. And she's standing right there. Honey, do you want to come have dinner? Yeah, just a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm with you right now. You know? book and Cheryl's standing in the house going can I go with you instead and I'm in the you know Olive Garden with my picture book my wife right here just love you so much love you and we laugh but we do that with Jesus it's exactly what we do we cling to the pictures instead of the person and Jesus is saying I'd like to go to Olive Garden Can I be with you today? Can we walk in relationship beyond religion? It was for freedom that Christ set you free. So don't return to a yoke of slavery, Paul says. The law is a picture. Jesus is the person. The law is shadow. Jesus is the substance, the fulfillment of the law. And by the way, the law does not have the power to compel your love for Jesus Christ. The more you try to keep the commands, the more you try to keep law, the more religious you are, the less compelled you will be to love Jesus. It's the other way around. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Not keep my commandments and prove to me your love. No, if you love me, the commandments are going to flow. Because if you love me, you will be motivated and compelled in a way that keeping religion cannot work. It cannot do it. Religion just makes us sour. It puts that look on your face. Welcome to church. This morning. Glad you're here. That's religion. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 tells us the love of Christ compels us. 
motivates us, moves us. The love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The book of Joshua gang, we've talked about this, it's a picture of the spirit-filled life. It's a wonderful picture of entering in, of taking possession of the promises of God. Remember that phrase? And we heard from Joshua last week. Not this Joshua. Jo- your Joshua. Brother Joshua. Way to go Joshua. He was the only one who remembered. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. Taking possession of the promises. That life lived in the Spirit. Lived in a love affair with the person of Jesus Christ that completely outshines everything else. The people of Israel had this great relationship with God. They came into the land and it wasn't long before they were grabbing for the Ark of the Covenant as their idol to save them. It didn't work, did it? It never does. Religion never does. But Paul says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Not complete in law. Not complete in church attendance. Not complete in your traditions. Complete in Christ. i got to tell you a little secret. This is the last thing I'm going to share. It really is. Three years ago, when we started this church, and I met Rod and Barb Gilmore, they hadn't been going to church for two years. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was a good thing that I came along because I had been going to church. You know, we just want to speak the truth here at the bridge, alright? I came from a place, gang, where you had to be there. And I'm telling you this morning, that you need to be where you are drawn closer into relationship with Christ, wherever that is. And that means, husbands, if, that, if you need to take your wife out to breakfast next Sunday instead of being here, I'll see you in two weeks. Because relationship with Jesus is more important. Now, some of you are going, great, you're going to really build a church that way, Rick. That's terrific. <laughs> hey, I will say this to you. It is more important that you grow in a relationship with Jesus than you sit in a seat in a barn. It's more important. Now, if sitting in the seat in the barn, if worshiping here, if opening up the Bible and setting His Word draws you closer to Jesus, then by all means, be here. I will, because I just don't miss church like the Gilmores did for two years. <laughs> morning after morning Sunday after Sunday ready to go to church and God said nope and it was as confusing to them as it was to everybody else who knew them friends who were saying you're not going to church you're walking out of fellowship with the Lord but they knew that they were God was doing something he was preparing he was getting something ready they had no idea it was going to be the bridge not a clue now again, I'm not encouraging you to quit church. What I'm encouraging you to do is to, do is to quit religion and start living relationship with Jesus Christ. Pour over His Word. Spend time with Him in prayer. Walk with Him. Talk with Him. Let Him be the center of your focus and your attention and your love. And I guarantee you, the law will take care of itself. He is the captain of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name this morning. Jesus, we praise you and glorify you and lift you up as the only one worthy of all our praise. 
You are the captain of our salvation. And so this morning, Lord, we pray, take control of these vessels. Take control of the ship, Father. And direct me in the course that you have designed for my life. And for each of us, Lord, may we follow you and live for you and love for you. And as we pursue that love relationship with you, then, Lord, change us. Fulfill your word in us. And have your perfect way with us. And if you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior before, and you've been putting it off because you think, wow, I, I just I can't do that. I, I'm not good enough. I invite you to enter into grace this morning. Just pray with me, Lord. I'm a sinner and I am sorry. And I need your forgiveness. And I believe that you did go to Mount Calvary. And you died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for my sin. And I pray that you'll forgive me and be my Lord. From this day forward, I proclaim you as the Christ, Messiah, my Savior. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.